You're listening to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. I'm your host, Richard Cantu. Please join me as I talk about World War I history and preserve the stories from the soldiers who lived through it. Welcome back, folks. This is episode 49, What's in the Sky? I just finished up the Gallipoli series, which took a bit of time. It was brutal fighting with horrendous results. I wanted to do something a little different for this episode, something to break up the monotony from the death and destruction. Even though this is what this podcast is really about, but sometimes you got to throw in a different kind of episode here and there to break it up a bit. What's in the sky is definitely going to be a little different. With all the UFO reportings that we see today and governments acknowledging UFOs, I thought I'd do a show on UFOs being reported during the Great War. And it's important to note, UFO doesn't necessarily have to involve little green men or be from another planet. It just means something flying around that can't be identified. You're going to hear just a few of many reports about people seeing mysterious planes and objects in the sky right after the Great War kicked off. But before I do, let me go over a couple things. Don't have any good life updates, so let me skip past that. On the last episode, I closed out the Gallipoli series. Like I said, I'm not going to do any recapping. I think we're up to speed, and since we're not really following a timeline on this episode, it's not really necessary. And if you haven't heard the Gallipoli series, go check it out. So, what am I drinking for this episode? I'm having a daiquiri, and not that monstrosity you see coming out of a blender, the kind that also comes in a virgin children order during brunch. No. This is a proper gentleman and ladies drink, a classic style daiquiri. If your local bartender only knows a blended version, then he or she should be finding a new line of profession or find yourself a new bartender because that's blasphemy. The classic daiquiri consists of Cuban rum, lime, and sugar. That's it. Super simple. There's also a Hemingway version since he was a big fan of the drink, except in his version, he replaced the sugar with Luxardo cherry liqueur and added fresh grapefruit juice. I believe he replaced the sugar with the Luxardo because he had diabetes, although with the amount he consumed, I'm not really sure this helped much. Uh, I've had the Hemingway version. In fact, I just had one because I pre-game for this episode feel like this is the kind of episode you want to come into a little sauced. Uh, the Hemingway version is good. It's a little on the drier side, but overall, I prefer the classic version. And for the classic, I use the following. Three-quarter ounce simple syrup, three-quarter ounce fresh squeezed lime juice, three-quarter ounce white rum. Um, a lot of people prefer Bacardi, the original Cuban white rum, even though I don't even think it's made in Cuba. It's, I think it's made in Puerto Rico. Just use a white rum. I use plantation because I like it, but just use a white rum. Shake well and strain into a coupe glass. Garnish if you're feeling a little fancy. 
and sip away. Yo, that is good. Let me tell you guys, I'm warning you, these are no pansy ass drinks. Don't be fooled by the word daiquiri. Don't be fooled that that blended little thing you see at, at restaurants. No, this thing is uh, this thing is potent. It'll do the job. All right, let's get into this episode. Step into my office on Baker Street. We need to do some investigating to see if these UFO reports are nothing but a hoax or to see if they could be real. Is it the Germans or could it be little green men or gray men? Strange objects in the sky have been reported for centuries. This isn't anything new to us. And with governments recently releasing documents and videos, it's raised a lot of eyebrows, leaving people with a question. Are we not alone in the universe? Also, many scientists, astronomers, astrophysicists now believe there's multi-universes that can't, we can't even begin to grasp our minds around yet. It shouldn't be a shocker that strange objects were reported during the Great War. And trust me, I know what some of you are thinking, because I immediately thought the same thing, and that's most of these are probably Zeppelin sightings. And that's probably the case. In fact, there's a lot of reports even today that can be explained. But just hear them out. Some of these throw in a little twist to think it possibly could be something else. We're first going to take a look at reportings about phantom aircraft sightings from Great Britain in 1914. When the war first broke out, Britain expected immediate attacks from German Zeppelins. I'm not saying they were prepared, but they were definitely on the lookout for anything strange in the air. And there was multiple sightings after the war kicked off and even before the war. Keep in mind, the first Zeppelin attack didn't take place until January 19, 1915 on the coastal towns of Great Yarmouth and Kingsland. The Germans deliberately targeted the civilians from the air. At 2.45 a.m. on the 5th of August, 1914, reports came in from the River Eden near Carlisle that people heard an airplane traveling from east to west following the course of the river. They were puzzled what this could be. What the bloody hell was that all about? Settle down, Ronald. Shortly after, the war office began receiving reports of an airship flying near Barrows and Furnace. Barrow had the only anti-aircraft gun on the coast position at Vickers. Vickers was also a shipyard where they built airships. On the night of August 7th, a Furnace train was reported to have been following an airship before heading out to sea. August 9th, 21.30 hours, two privates on duty at Ulverston, nine miles from Barrow, heard a buzzing sound in the air and saw a flashing white light go towards Barrow. Two civilians also reported hearing and seeing this. One of those civilians named Henry Wilson reported seeing a long narrow shape as the bright light went out. The light was again seen at 2200 hours. The commander of the new Barrow defenses, Major Beck, reported two, possibly three airships had been sighted during the night of August 10th. 
On the 11th, a Royal Navy commander reported that one of his outposts reported seeing two airships. They were described as cigar-shaped and yellowish. Now, these reportings were during the evening. I don't know who could make out colors in the night sky. This seems a bit odd. The commander believed the Germans had a temporary base in the hills and were operating out, out of there. Another odd thing. If they did have a temporary base in the hills, somebody would have seen them building this and surely would have reported it. But let's continue on. 2240 hours on, the, on August 11th, a police sergeant heard an aircraft flying over Cumbria. He reported seeing a white speck moving rapidly towards the Solway Firth. Cumbria is quite a distance from London. From Germany, obviously the distance is much greater. If a Zeppelin did take a cruise ship up that far, you think it would have been spotted and dealt with. Could planes make such a lengthy trip at this time? Could that be what they spotted? The following day, a group of Boy Scouts along with their Scoutmaster observed an aircraft coming towards them in Taunton at 2030 hours. I hope I'm saying this right, Taunton. Taunton is way off from Cumbria. The distance between these locations are eyebrow raising. As the airship came upon them, it turned broadside flying away. At 2057, the craft appeared to be coming at them again as it rose into sight, then suddenly went out of sight. Another group of boys in Wellington also reported seeing the flying object before it disappeared. Military officials first believed this could have been an airplane, but no flights had been authorized for that area. And what kind of scoutmaster still lets the boys hang out after supposedly seeing an airship? Was there no sense of danger or sense to get to safe cover in case the threat was real? Ireland first reported seeing an aircraft on the 13th of August in Galway. The distance is getting wider and wider. Now reports are coming from Ireland. And not only just Ireland, but Galway, Ireland. That's on the west coast. On the 14th of August, a submarine at Humber River sighted an airship which appeared to be hugging the coast at a high altitude at 2200 hours. 10 minutes later, a sentry at Barrow spotted a light in the sky. And at that same hour, the chief constable of Carlisle saw a strange stationary light and an airship making a peculiar whirling sound which was seen that evening in Penrith. The reports were serious now. On the 5th of August, Yemenary from Cumberland and Westmoreland were sent to search for this so-called phantom aviator. Boy Scouts helped to guard various water supplies. Who the hell are these Boy Scouts? Like, what the f- What the hell? These are not the same Boy Scouts I know. These kids sound like some badasses. I put my son in the Cub Scouts when he was young and volunteered to help the troop because I believed they'd be doing shit in the woods like camping, survival, fishing, shooting arrows, how to, t how to change a tire, etc. I was prepared to teach them rope bridges, knots, how to safely and properly sharpen a knife and axe, survival skills, how to skin a rabbit or a snake, maybe even would have thrown in some jujitsu if there was time. I was prepared to assist with activities like this. 
but no, they didn't do any of this. Honestly, it was the kids doing a lot of paperwork, almost like homework at one of the parents' house. I quickly pulled him out. He stuck with soccer up, up till he graduated high school. Anyways, veered off there. An airplane had been seen resting on the hills near Eskdale, along with aerial noises being heard in the area during the evening hours. Now, the Germans could have sent scout planes over, but remember, the first successful flight across the English, English Channel wasn't until 1909. This flying thing is still fairly new. There was flying schools in England, such as that on Lake Windermere. It was first suspected that it was planes from the school. However, the school confirmed no flights took place. And I highly doubt any school was teaching to fly at night back then. London became the target of the so-called phantom ship scares on the 24th of August. Enemy aircraft-like objects were seen hovering around 4,000 feet, one of them over the Thames River. On the 5th of September, a police boat crew patrolling the River Thames saw an egg-shaped object following the river's path at 2105 hours. The object was viewed for a couple minutes. The press said it was a naval airship flight. However, the Navy knew nothing of such a flight. Here's an interesting statement from a flight commander on September 6, 1914, he wrote the following. At 5.35 a.m., 6th of September, whilst on patrol halfway between sunk and shipwash lightships, I sighted an airship with a silver-colored envelope on the horizon. I was flying at 1,300 feet at the time. I at once started to follow her and did so for about 10 miles when she disappeared into the haze. I was unable to pick her up again." End quote. On October 13th, a meteor was heard and seen over North Cheshire. The War Office received reports referring to explosions, bombs, and artillery fire for a period of two hours that covered a 20-mile radius. An official report published the next morning spoke of two hostile airships operating during the night and dropping bombs over half a county. So. Why is it that the first official aircraft raid on Britain wasn't until January of 1915? Interesting. Fast forward to December 26, and there were still multiple sightings up to this point. Three aircraft were spotted with blue lights traveling around St. Catherine's Point, Isle of Wight, Spithead, and Hilsey. These planes were even spotted by an aircraft detachment. You would ask, did they send up any airplanes of their own to investigate or something of the nature? But weather on this day was too bad to send up any aircraft. So what do you think? Do you think we have a clear case for unidentified flying objects? Or do you think this can be explained by German aircraft? There's some interesting facts here that raise my eyebrow did the German Imperial Army really have that many aircraft? I mean, we're talking multiple sightings between August and December of 1914. I question if, if aircraft had the capability at that time to travel such distances back and forth. Again, we're talking in some cases reporting coming from Ireland and Scotland. Or did they really have aircraft hangars hiding within Great Britain, 
that nobody knew about. Some people will argue this could have been aliens. My opinion, I, I think these were German aircraft. In some cases, they reported seeing a boxcar at the bottom of the oblong-shaped object. Clearly, this matches the description of a Zeppelin. But I do question how they pulled this off. And I question why they waited to attack until January of 1915. Why didn't they attack starting in August if they were that far in? Why make all those trips for nothing? I'll let you come to your own conclusions. Next on the list, Norway. The country who maintained neutrality during the Great War had a series of mysterious aircraft sightings between 1914 and 1916. On August 2nd, 1914, just as the war was breaking off, the first report came in. A biplane was spotted circling the area from high above Stavanger. Uh, look at a map. Stavanger is way off course from the war. Why would an airplane be in the area? On the 17th of September, many witnesses claimed to have seen a mysterious flying object with a bright light flying around Alta and Talvik. Some say it looked like a very bright star with a backdrop of an overcast sky, and at times the white light changed colors to blue and red. The object appeared between 2100 hours and 2200 hours. The mysterious craft seemed to be moving around slowly, varying in heights, before quickly darting out of sight. At Naplun on October 22nd, close to a dozen witnesses reported seeing a cigar-shaped object which they could hear humming of what sounded like an engine moving eastward. On December 20th at 0800 hours, witnesses, including the town's police official in Salem, reported seeing a mysterious craft at dizzying heights. It first appeared to be moving inland, then turned and went out to sea. Sometime in 1915, and why it says sometimes, I don't know, being that the book reported a time, but let's not let that stop this because this one is odd. In Bergen, it was reported that a mysterious object was spotted around 2300 hours. It appeared as big as the moon red and brown in color, and very bright. The craft descended and ascended multiple times before bolting off westward. Could these be related to the reports of a six-year-old named Jarn Westford reported around this time period? The child remembered a summer day in 1915. He saw a dark bell-like object land on a hill near, and I'm gonna butcher this, Sulitjelma? Sulitjelma. Shortly afterward, he saw two short gray-skinned human-like beings in dark overalls appear and started walking towards him. One of the gray beings stopped and smiled at him. Then they returned to the hill and the bell-like object bolted towards the sky. So why Norway? Why would Germans be flying aircraft in a neutral zone that is completely off course? Unless they had hangars in Norway that nobody knew of, which would explain some of the sightings in the UK. Or could this actually be UFOs? 
this one is strange to me. I'm on the fence. I don't see any reason for Germany to be there unless they had air bases to launch from. I'll admit some of these reports don't sound like any aircraft for that time. I'm not saying I believe the kid. Kids make stories up in their head. But some of these craft bolting off as described definitely raises the eyebrow. After the war broke out, Europe wasn't the only continent to report mysterious flying crafts. North America sighting shouldn't be a shocker. But how about Australia? Australia reporting mysterious crafts should come as a shock if we're talking enemy aircraft. Why? Well, not only for the obvious reason of distance, but also inventory. Why would Germany send planes to Australia if they were needed at the front? In 1917, citizens of Gippsland reported seeing airplanes circling at great heights. At first, nothing was thought of this until reports started flowing in regarding mysterious aircraft being sighted starting in 1918. March 21st, 1918. In northwestern Victoria, a woman spotted two aircraft flying northward. Fourteen other witnesses reported seeing the same craft. After which, police began to patrol near the area 30 miles from Uyen, returning with the same report. On April 18th, a balloon-like object was seen by a teenage girl in Brunbury. Shortly after, another sighting in the same area was seen by a mechanic working in the town. He reported saying the following, On the 21st of April 1918, with my wife, I was staying at my wife's uncle's place in Mornington Junction from 9.15 to 10.30 p.m. I saw an object at a low altitude over the camp. Then this object traveled out to sea towards Port Phillip Bay. This object was emitting intermittent flashes of red, green, and white lights with a flash. Sometimes a few seconds elapsed between these flashes and sometimes up to two to three minutes. The altitude varied considerably. The low altitude appeared near the water and then it would rise and appear to come towards us and then go away. I cannot give any information regarding the noise." End quote. On April 30th, a man saw what he thought was a seaplane traveling over Hobart. Then, on the 2nd of May, employees at a butter factory in Gippsland viewed an airplane overhead for three hours. Sightings in Australia continued through the remaining of the war. In fact, there was around 200 sightings coming from Australia in 1918 reports of different sizes and shapes. One of the strangest was reported to be a dark square-like object. I would say any sighting around Australia would be eyebrow-raising for the fact that the Australian government never said anything about their own planes being flown in the area. But who's to say that wasn't actually the case? One sighting in particular, a woman stated she seen an airplane fly by through the moonlight she claimed that she, would, she was able to make out two people sitting side by side in which they had caps pulled over their ears. I mean, first off, what the hell were they feeding these people back then? You got Boy Scouts guarding water supplies, people seeing planes in the night sky with the ability to make out earmuffs of some sort, being able to tell yardage at great heights. I mean, come on. What were these people eating back then? 
my take on this is the Aussies might have had pilots training at home. I don't think they had a great amount of planes because most were used for the war, but clearly they did have planes back at home. Also, in 1918, the German Wolf raiding vessel was reported off the coast of Australia. But even more important information pertaining to this case is the vessel also carried a Wolfchen FF seaplane during its 15-month voyage. Germany reported they flew the Wolfchen over Sydney Harbor without anyone hearing or spotting it. So for me, I would conclude this was an ET cruising around. It was either the German Wolfchen or Australian pilots. Side note, I'm planning on doing an episode on the Wolf Rating Vessel. The story is amazing. And also, you should take a look at its little brother, the Wolf Chen. A very cool looking plane for its time. And last but not least, Zered Bellin. The final story for this episode. A real doozy. <laughs> Supposedly, the Red Baron shot down a UFO during the early morning hours in the spring of 1917 over western Belgium. As ridiculous as this seems, this was reported and it's in the book. What book? I'll tell you what book in a bit. But yes, this is supposedly what happened. A German ace pilot by the name of Peter Weitzrich was flying a Fokker triplane in a group with the Baron, when suddenly a mysterious craft appeared. He reported the craft looked like a flying saucer, silver with orange lights, about 136 feet in diameter. Weitzrich's statement about the initial encounter, he said the following. We were terrified because we'd never seen anything like it before. The U.S. had just entered the war, so we assumed it was something they'd sent up. The Baron immediately opened fire and the thing went down like a rock, shearing off tree limbs as it crashed in the woods. Weitzrich's recollection is going to get even more bizarre. He claimed that after it crashed, two bruised and battered occupants got out of the craft and ran for the woods. He went on to say, The Baron and I gave a full report on the incident back at headquarters and they told us, not to ever mention this again. And except for my wife and grandkids, I never told a soul. Until the 1940s, Peter believed it was a secret U.S. aircraft. But with more and more supposed UFO sightings, he began to believe it was something else, possibly something not of this world. He went on to say, So there's no doubt in my mind now, that was no U.S. reconnaissance plane the Baron shot down. That was some kind of spacecraft from another planet, and those little guys who ran off into the woods weren't Americans. They were space aliens of some kind. Peter was a retired airline pilot who lived to be 105 years of age. He felt he had nothing to lose by making it public 80 years after the event. But, like any UFO sightings, there's going to be skeptics, criticism, and conspiracy, 
and naturally this story contains all of the above. Skeptics found a few flaws right out the gate. First, the report came from the August 1999 edition of the Weekly World News. I believe this is something like the National Enquirer, not the most reliable source. Second, Fokker triplanes weren't put into operational service until August of 1917. Also, what happened to the crash saucer and the two, do I call them aliens? I'll call them occupants. What happened to the craft and the occupants? A skeptic named Patrick Gross said the story was totally fictional and that more importantly, Peter Weitzrich was an invented character. There's a picture of the supposed Peter along with the Baron and the other pilots. I'll have this up on my social media site. But Patrick Gross says this is not Peter Weitzrich. So immediately you'll say, Come on, bub. This story is clearly nothing but bull. But is it? There are those conspirators who say Peter is a real person, that it is actually him in the picture. So, if it is really Peter, would this change your thoughts on the story? The part about the Fokker triplane, well, it wouldn't surprise me if some pilots may have flown it before August. I mean, Things like this did happen, so to me, this isn't the most solid argument. For this story, I mean, all you have to do is look up German military service records, if that's possible. That'll let you know if Peter was a real person or not. This is one of those folklores that people want to tell. Almost like the Angel of Mons. Personally, I think the story's made up. My opinion... If a UFO is real, it's clearly made from material able to withstand elements that most can't comprehend in order to travel interstellar. So, to travel all the way to Belgium, Earth, just to get shot down by the world's first fighting aircraft, I think is extremely far-fetched. But I'm not judging if you do believe it's true. It is an entertaining folklore from the Great War. There's a couple cases that do raise my eyebrows, like the Norway sightings. I haven't read anything about Germans operating out of Norway during the war. I'm not saying it's not possible or true, I just haven't personally read anything. Why would they be that far off course? London was the key target for Germans bombing Britain. The safest and best fuel economy route would just be from the mainland to head directly to London and then turn around. If I was a conspiracy theorist, I would definitely look into that one. But for me, the others really sound like German airplanes and Zeppelins or other Allied aircraft based on many of the descriptions. Sightings in Ireland and Scotland are weird, but not impossible. And it is possible, again, I haven't read anything saying it's true, but it's possible Germany could have had aircraft hangars built in remote locations by spies before the war. The outbreak of the war in 1914 wasn't a big shocker to politicians and the aristocrats. They were anticipating this for some time. But there's multiple reports of mysterious aircraft during wartime. 
Is there another species coming to monitor just how crazy we can get? Could be, but I'm the type who has to see it for myself to solidly say something like a UFO is real. All right, folks, that's going to be it for this episode. I hope you're entertained. I hope you enjoyed it and can make some fun out of it. The book I read for this episode is titled UFOs of the First World War by Nigel Watson. I enjoyed it. For me, it was entertainment that I was looking for. I got my copy from a secondhand bookstore that I pop into now and again and to browse. It's next to a ceviche and fish taco place my wife and I like. So I always make it a point to jump in and see if they have anything new on World War I. And voila, I found UFOs of World War I. I did see it on Amazon, so if you're interested in the story, in the other stories in the book, you can grab yourself a copy. Remember, folks, you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can email the show at ottgwpodcast at gmail.com. Every episode is on my website, www.ottgw... What, do I say that right? Or is the... Damn, is the daiquiris kicking in? Say that again. The website, www.ottgwpodcast.com, along with other podcast platforms such as Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Until the next episode, take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.